Let's pray. Father, we believe all scripture has been breathed out by you. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that we, your people, might be complete, equipped for every good work. Your word's a lamp to guide our feet, a light to guide our path. Your word is living and active. And we ask by your grace this morning, would your word dwell in our hearts richly by faith? Would your word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, work in us this morning, open our eyes by it, equip us through it, and reprove and correct us in it as you see fit. All this we pray in the marvelous, great, and good name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Acts chapter 9, we began Acts, uh, let's see, we began it all the way back in the early fall, and now it's December, which means we've spent several months now in this series on Acts. We've covered eight chapters of this book. We still got 20 to go, which means at this rate, if you're calculating, we should be finished right around AD 2027. So settle in, okay? Acts 9 this morning, what we're looking at If you think of the book of Acts, this really is, this book, the hinge of the entire book. Even though we're only a third of the way through the book as a whole, Acts 9 is the turning point of Jesus' mission for his church, for his kingdom on earth. Acts 1, you'll remember this because we looked at it last week. Jesus told his church, he told his apostles, his plan for them and his kingdom. He told them, my kingdom is going to spread through your witness. It's going to spread by you sharing the gospel, sharing about me, telling people about Jesus. That's how my kingdom spreads. And he said that this spread would unfold in four stages. He told his apostles before he ascended into heaven, you will receive power When my Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, then in all Judea and Samaria, and then finally, ultimately, to the ends of the earth. And up to this point, we've seen Jesus do just that. We've seen stages one, two, and three already unfold in this book of Acts. Jesus' kingdom is spread through the witness of his church first in Jerusalem, Thousands of people converted, coming to know Jesus for the first time. Then we saw last week, it spread to Judea, then into Samaria through a man named Philip. All of these areas, Jerusalem, Samaria, and Judea, had some familiarity with Judaism. Those are parts one through three. And now the question remains, how is Jesus going to unfold stage four here? How will Jesus spread his kingdom to the ends of the earth? How is he going to do that? To reach Gentiles, those who don't have any familiarity with Judaism or little familiarity with Judaism, how will Jesus unfold stage four of his plan? Well, the answer, initially at least, is that Jesus is going to use a man. He's going to use a Pharisee. He's going to use a persecutor of the church, a man who hates Christianity and hates Christians, a man who sought with every ounce of his being to intimidate and eradicate followers of Jesus, a man by the name of Saul. And we're introduced to Saul, verse 1, chapter 9, as stage 4 opens. We read, Luke writes, that this Saul was still 
breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. We've met Saul before. Acts chapter 8, last week, Saul was the spearhead of Christian persecution in Jerusalem. He's going from house to house to house to house. He's knocking on doors, asking people, hey, are there any followers of the way in here? Any Christians? And once he found them, it didn't matter who they were. These could be men. These could be women. These could be servants, merchants, slave, free, anyone. It didn't matter who you were. Saul dragged them out, arrested them, tried them before a court and had them thrown into prison. And it was his hope that some of them, especially the leaders, would be executed. And now, even though months have passed, nothing's changed. We read verse 1, Saul is still still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus. But what has changed is that Saul has caught wind. Because of the persecution in Jerusalem, some people have scattered, they've spread. Some have gone into the area of Galilee. Some have even gone ultimately 135 miles north into Syria, settling in a city called Damascus. So just as he was the spearhead of persecution in Jerusalem, he wants to do that same thing, but now in Damascus, be the spearhead of antagonisms, of antagonism for Christians in Damascus. So at the end of verse 1, Saul hatches a plan. Saul went to the high priest. This is a man named Caiaphas. It's the same man, incidentally, who oversaw the trial of Jesus, handing him over to Pontius Pilate to be crucified for his heresy. Saul goes to Caiaphas and in verse 2, asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, we'll return to that term here in a moment, Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul now has letters in his hand. These are letters of extradition, right? These are letters that he can bring into the synagogues, these Jewish places of worship throughout the Mediterranean world. He can slam them down on a table before the elders of the synagogues and the leaders of the synagogues. And these are letters signed by the high priest that says, hey, if you have any Christians here, if you have those who belong to this new sect, this new heresy called the way, if you hear of people talking about Christ or Jesus of Nazareth, teaching about him, if there's any talk about resurrection, this is what these Christians like to talk about, resurrection or forgiveness of sins or eternal life. It doesn't matter if they're friends or family. It doesn't matter if they're respected in your synagogues. By my decree, by the orders of the great high priest, hand them over to Saul immediately. Sincerely yours, Caiaphas. That's what Saul's carrying in his hands. Letters of extradition. This is a license to arrest and drag Christians back to Jerusalem as criminals. And remember, this is the hinge. This is the hinge of Acts. And this is the first man we meet, Saul, a man who is still breathing threats and murder against followers of Jesus. See, for Saul, Christians were so utterly, utterly despicable and theologically mistaken that he was convinced. These, these Christians are so out of step with the broader culture. Don't you see that? 
And, and because of that mindset for Saul, aggressive, forceful measures need to be taken in order to stop them in their tracks. We've seen a similar phenomenon take place over the last two decades in the Christian West. Some of you know this. Actually, I know some of you have students that have gone to Christian schools like Gordon College in Massachusetts or King's College in New York City. And you know that because your kids go to these schools, there is a constant threat that those schools could lose their accreditation, have their accreditation taken away. Why? Because they simply hold to basic Orthodox Christian beliefs. You've experienced it if you were involved in a Christian student group on campus. I know many of you graduated college around the same time that I did. If you were in a campus ministry like Crew or Navigators or Reformed University Fellowship, that's our denominational uh, Christian student group on college campuses, and you went to schools like Vanderbilt or Michigan or Iowa or hundreds of other schools throughout the United States, you know what it's like to have your charter to meet on campus being taken away because you wouldn't put certain people into leadership. Namely, having people sign a statement of belief that said that you're a Christian. I went to Vanderbilt. When I was in grad school, entered grad school in 2012, you know how many student groups met on campus? How many Christian student groups met on campus at Vanderbilt? Zero. Because they all had their charter removed. If you've worked for or worked with a Christian adoption agency or pregnancy center, you know that there are aggressive, forceful measures that are being carried out for the last 20 years. These places have faced legislative pressures, protests, lawsuits, fines. If you work in mental health, what it's like you, you know better than anyone what it's like to have legislation passed, especially in Colorado, that narrowly limits what you can and cannot say, what you can and cannot suggest, what you can and cannot recommend. Time magazine, they actually describe these and other events over the last two decades as, quote, a mounting insidious intolerance for religion in America. This is Time magazine. Right? This isn't like a bastion of Christian orthodoxy here. It's time saying that the last 20 years in America have been insidiously intolerant toward faith. And that's the disposition of Saul right here in Acts chapter 9. For Saul, Christians are so contemptible, mistaken, wrong, out of step with culture, so dangerous to the prevailing opinions and views of the day, he's convinced aggressive measures need to be taken. After all, in Saul's mind, he's thinking, just, just look at the insolence of these Christians. Did you see how they describe themselves? In verse 2, these Christians are describing themselves as the way, meaning Christians referred to themselves as the way to heaven. Follow us, we know the way to heaven. Not because of who they are, but because they believe in Jesus. He's the way to heaven. Through his death, resurrection, and ultimately his ascension, he's already in heaven at the moment. He is the only way to heaven. And this idea grates against Saul. Jesus spoke this way. Jesus spoke this way repeatedly, in fact, speaking to his followers during the last few weeks of his life. Jesus wanted to comfort them by reminding them of these great truths about heaven, about eternal life. He told them, let not your hearts be troubled. 
Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus here is talking about heaven. You see, he's talking about going to the father, going to prepare rooms for his church, for his people. You wonder what Jesus is doing right now? Well, he's ruling over his church and he's preparing a place for his followers so that they can one day spend eternity with the father. And he goes on to comfort them saying, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you will be also and you know the way to where I am going. But Thomas, one of the disciples, because this happens quite a bit with the disciples, he raises his hands like, I don't know where you're going. (laughs) Uh, I kind of don't know the way Jesus and Jesus said to him, Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life No one comes to the Father except through me. These estimates aren't exact. I don't know if anybody knows this for sure, but estimates say that there are over 4,000 religions in the world. 4,000. Now, most of those fall under the big five. Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Judaism, and Buddhism. But around 4,000 nonetheless. There are countless other philosophies, theories, practices, way of relating to God, ways of spirituality, like YOLO. That's the predominant, right, spirituality of American millennials. But Jesus says, do you want to find eternal life? Everlasting life? Do you want forgiveness for your sins in the past? Do you want to know the joy of heaven with the Father? Do you want to actually know God? There's one way, and I'm him. That made sense of what Jesus had preached about earlier in his ministry. Jesus, during the Sermon on the Mount, was speaking about the many ways people can go astray and miss the one way which leads to life. He told Anybody within earshot, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus is the gate. He is the way. All other paths, Jesus say, lead to destruction. Jesus actually put eternal implications on this later on in his ministry. He he talked about the time when heaven, hell, eternity will be revealed and the two ways that people have taken will be revealed. He said it'll look like this. When the son of man comes in his glory, that's Jesus talking about himself there. He's the son of man and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations, every single person who's ever lived whatever path that they're on. And the son of man will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire 
prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous, those who have faith in Jesus, follow him as the way they will enter into eternal life. Saul, you realize he was a strict Pharisee. He was trained by one of the most renowned rabbis of the day, and he believed the way to eternal life is through obedience to God's law. The precepts that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai all the way back thousands of years before, those observances were the way a person made it to eternal life with God. And the law insisted, even in books like Deuteronomy, that if you were crucified like Jesus had been, then you were cursed by God as a criminal. He believed that if Jesus were the Messiah, he would come and conquer. He would win. He would overthrow evildoers and sinners and corruptly earthly powers, not be crucified. Saul said, that's the way. Strict Torah observance by the Hebrew people awaiting a conquering Messiah. That's the way to eternal life. But now here, here are these swaths of Prostitutes, tax collectors, people who want nothing to do with God, it seems like, in Judea, Jew, Samaria, Jerusalem, and now even in Damascus, insisting, no, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God, God himself. He's the only one who's perfectly obeyed God. He's the only one who's ever followed all of Moses' precepts. He was crucified and cursed, not because he was a criminal, but because he was taking our place, being cursed because we do not uphold the precepts and the law given by Moses. No one comes to the Father except through him. He's the way, the gate, the judge. All the other ways lead to destruction, including your way, Saul. That's what they were saying. And because of that, intolerance, this Insidious intolerance, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus. Paul or Saul is feeling all of this now. Deer Creek, realize Saul here is the rule, not the exception. And here's what I mean by that. There has never been a time when Christianity wasn't resisted, hated, or persecuted in some way. There never has been a time. In the West, for centuries, Christians have been mainstream and realize that is the exception to the course of history. It is not the rule. As things shift, as family members, coworkers, friends, neighbors, some of them were told, and we have this truth from Scripture, they're going to display this same sort of antipathy toward Christianity like Saul did, but that is not something that we should think of as an exception, but the rule. Following Jesus, he said the gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life because proclaiming the way of Jesus is narrow. Saul is the rule, not the exception. But look at what God can do. <laughs> you may think, and it'd be totally proper at this point to think, how is Jesus going to spread his kingdom through this guy? How is he going to go to the ends of the earth using Saul, a man with letters of extradition in his hand, to arrest Christians as criminals? He wants to put some of them to death. Well, what we see is that Jesus, by grace, is going to move heaven and earth to use Saul. Luke writes about this amazing intervention that happens in Saul's life. Verse 3, he says, Now as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus, 
And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? At this point, there's probably two things going on in Saul's mind. First, Paul knows, or Saul knows, because he's a faithful Jew, he knows the Old Testament, he knows God is speaking to me here. He knows that because in the Old Testament, when God revealed himself to people, this was very common. Blinding light, the holiness of God, the splendor and terrible majesty of God is on display. He knows this is God. Furthermore, when God calls servants, when he calls people to himself to use them in the Bible, this is the way he addresses his people. It was with Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Samuel, Isaiah. This is how he does it. He calls out their names twice. Saul, Saul. This is God. And Saul knows it. But you have to think Saul's thinking here, who am I persecuting? God, I'm persecuting Christians, not you. I'm doing your thing. I'm on your side. What do you mean I'm persecuting? So Saul shouts back, I've got a question. Who are you? And the response isn't what he expected. I am Jesus. That's who you're persecuting. Rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you're to do. You're not doing the work of God, Saul. You're persecuting me. I, Jesus, am God, the crucified Jesus of Nazareth. I'm the son of God, the way, the truth, and the life. You still got questions? How about my question again to you, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Indulge me here. Just, this is just a brief aside. Do you know what the most common metaphor for the church is in the New Testament? Saul wrote about it constantly, almost in every one of his letters. Do you know what the, the main metaphor for the church is in the New Testament? It's the body of Christ. Listen carefully. What you do to the church or what you do with the church, you do with Jesus himself. Jesus says he is the head. The church is the body. What you do to the body, you do to the head. What you do to the head, you do to the body. There is a one-to-one correlation. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, Saul, why do you mistreat my people? He could have said that. He could have said, Saul, Saul, why are you making all this fuss with my church? He could have said that too. No, Jesus makes a one-to-one correlation here. He says, why do you persecute me? What you do with the body you do to the head. You are not persecuting a mere spiritual institution. You're persecuting God. Not a good idea, by the way. So much for the sentiment today that says, I love Jesus, but ah, the church... That's an impossibility. Some people say they follow Jesus, but they don't want to commit to the church. They complain about the church. They avoid the church. They don't want to go to church. Some of them make fun of the church. They mock the church. They stand at arm's length from the church. They tell their friends, I'm a Christian, but I'm not like one of those crazy Christians who believes all that crazy stuff. I'm, I'm one of the, the nice guys, you know. But what you say, how you approach, and what you do to the church, you do to Jesus himself. The church is the body of Christ. Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, You see that? The New Testament also refers to the church as the bride of Christ. That's wild terminology. 
the bride of Christ that he loves, that he adores, that he's wedded himself to. Try this on for size. Go out to lunch with your father-in-law. Invite him out to lunch. In the first service, somebody went, (laughs) no. (laughs) Go out to lunch with your father-in-law and tell him how much he means to you. Say, I love you. You are just a fantastic father-in-law. I am honored to be in your family. You are the patriarch. Uh, There is nobody beside you. But that wife of yours, man, she is a pain in the you-know-what. See how that goes. You threaten somebody's bride, you might as well threaten themselves. Jesus is face to face with Saul and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Friends, your complaints, your rage, your anger, your threats, your mockery, your ridicule, and your disdain for Christians at the end of the day is not directed at the church. They're directed at Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. People have been through terrible things in the church. That needs to be acknowledged. Many people are products of poor churches, poor leadership, and they have been abused. For those people, I'm not talking about you here. What I'm talking about those are those people who think that the church is something, eh, I just don't really need that. Luke says in the next section, which begins verse 7, after this amazing intervention of Jesus, Luke says, Saul's blinded for three days. He can't see anything. He's without sight. And he spends those three days in prayer and fasting. And during that time, he has another vision. This time, verse 12, he sees a vision of a man named Ananias who's going to come to Saul. He's going to lay his hands on Saul, pray for him, baptize him. And then at that point, he's going to regain his sight. Let me ask you, you think Saul's view of Jesus changed after all this? Look at all that God does here to convert Saul, to convert one Sinner. He moves heaven and earth. God orchestrates all of this. The light, the voice, the vision, the blinding. Now Ananias, Jesus moves heaven and earth to convert this one sinner, this man named Saul. My wife Hannah is a saint. You all, you all only have to listen to me one Sunday out of the week. Right? You, you come here, you hear me teach. I know it's hard. But Hannah has to listen to that day in and day out. She hears me teach on Sunday. She listens to the podcast that we have at the church, or at least she pretends to listen to it while I'm around. We have a Wednesday cohort where we study theology together. She's a part of that. Even in fights and quarrels at home, you know, she makes this great, brilliant point about how I'm wrong, but then I'll go into teacher mode and say, well, that's not what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 31. And she pointed this out. In all of my teaching, I I commonly make this distinction between things that are ordinary and extraordinary. She says, you've been doing this through Acts. You've said it like seven times. That things are ordinary versus extraordinary. And she said, you know what I realized? I I think you just like saying the word extraordinary. (laughs) I think you just like the way that sounds. Well, let me do it again. Okay, look at the story. There are plenty of things in this account that are extraordinary. You see that? A light from heaven, a voice from heaven, a vision of the resurrected and glorified Jesus, a blinding takes place. All of these are extraordinary. These aren't things we should expect in conversion today. You shouldn't expect to fall off a horse. You don't even have to own a horse to be a Christian. All of those are extraordinary. 
But there is one basic ordinary thing that happens in every single conversion. It doesn't matter who it is. And that is the undeserved grace of Jesus. It is saturated throughout this account. Some say of the grace of Jesus, you know, Jesus, yeah, he died for your sins. But you have to kind of meet him halfway. You have to do your part. God helps those who help themselves. Really, what part did Saul do here? What did he do? Saul has letters to imprison. Saul is breathing murderous threats against Christians. He thinks the idea of Christianity is a joke. He isn't meeting God halfway. What part is he doing? No, Jesus is just a recipient of the free, unmerited grace of Jesus who loved him before Saul even knew who Jesus truly was. He stopped Paul in his tracks and brought him out of darkness, out of sin, into his marvelous light. Not because of anything good in Paul, but because God loved him before he was even born. I guarantee, before you leave today, talk to one person who's sitting next to you. Just talk to them. And I guarantee you talk to them and ask them, how did you come to follow Jesus? If they're followers of Jesus. And I guarantee you'd hear one commonality, and it's this. Jesus was gracious to me when I wanted nothing to do with him. That's how I came to follow him. He loved me before I loved him. When I wanted nothing to do with Jesus, he wanted something to do with me, and he made sure that he brought that about. I know you'd hear that because we have people in this church, some who have followed Jesus their entire life. We have others who have been converted later in life. But regardless of whatever camp that they're in, we have people here who are in prison, people who have battled drug and alcohol addiction, people who are former atheists in our church, people who have had affairs on their spouses, people who have sexual brokenness and other sexual sin in their life, people who are in abusive relationships, people who had unplanned pregnancies and cancer scares, people who lost their spouse, people who came out of other religions. We even have people in this congregation, you may not believe it, that were one time fans of the Kansas City Chiefs, but then they saw the light. (laughs) Amen. John Stott said this, John Stott, a brilliant preacher, brilliant teacher in the 20th century. He said, quote, if we ask what caused Saul's conversion, only one answer is possible. What stands out from the narrative is the sovereign grace of God through Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Saul did not make a decision for Christ, as we might say. On the contrary, he was persecuting Christ. It was rather Christ who decided for him and intervened in his life. The evidence for that is indisputable because God loves you before you love him. I guarantee, ask a follower of Jesus this morning and they will say the exact same thing, that my Savior loved me when I wanted nothing to do with him. Just by a show of hands, who is that true for in this room. Yeah. That's nothing other than the amazing free gift and grace of Jesus when you wanted nothing to do with him. In verse 15, God tells Ananias, Ananias is worried about going and visiting Saul. After all, he's the man who was sent there by the high priest to arrest Christians. But the Lord says to Ananias, go 
Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Christ is going to take the antagonist of his kingdom and make him the protagonist. Jesus says, he's my chosen instrument. My name's gone from Judea into Samaria, but now I'm going to use this man to carry my name before the Gentiles, people who don't even know about Judaism, people who have no idea who I am. And just as he was the spearhead of persecution, he is now going to be the spearhead of my kingdom advancing to the ends of the earth. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on Saul, he said to him, brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Saul was blind, but now he sees. In more ways than one. He's been converted. He now knows he belongs to the way. He now knows Jesus. It's the most precious thing that a person can know. The only person who's ever perfectly obeyed God. The only person who's ever followed Moses to a T. The only one who's worthy enough to be crucified and sacrificed for our sins. He's the one who loved Saul and gave himself for him when Saul wanted nothing to do with him. Everything about Saul's changed now. He's been converted by grace. Saul used to believe, I I can do it. I I can live a good enough life. I can do all the right things. Isn't it the case, right, that if you do more good things than bad things, and if the good things outweigh the bad things, that's how a person inherits eternal life? Well, not when you see Jesus because you realize that these bad things are a lot worse than you ever thought, and Jesus' goodness far outweighs any goodness that you could ever offer. Now he knows it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God freely given so that no one could boast. Years later, Saul speaks about this conversion. He speaks about it in a sermon in Acts, in fact, and he talks about what Ananias had actually said. He fleshes out in more detail exactly what Ananias told him. We're told Ananias came in to visit Saul And Saul describes him as a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived in Damascus. Well, he came to me and standing by me, said to me, brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and I saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one. And to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins. Call on the name of Jesus. It's quite possible there are some people in here this morning and you are unconverted. You don't know Jesus. Why do you wait? Heaven, hell, eternal reality, and you have a gracious God who loved you before you loved him, sacrificed himself for you. Why do you wait? You can have all your sins washed away. You can be forgiven. I love this song by 
Joseph Hart. It's entitled, Come Ye Sinners. He writes, Come, sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. He's full of pity, joined with power. He is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. Come, weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you wait until you're better, you'll never come at all. If you're waiting to be better to come to Jesus, that day will never come. Because Jesus did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to himself. Why do you wait? Believe in Jesus, be baptized, wash away your sins. You can know the grace of Jesus. Following his conversion, everything about Saul changes. Everything. He's now Jesus' spearhead. He's his chosen instrument. And we get a snapshot of what the rest of Saul's life is going to look like from here on out, beginning in verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, these very people that he was going there to arrest. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Talk about a change. And all who heard him were amazed and said, isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring us bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. The antagonist, the agitator, the persecutor is now changed into the protagonist. He's boldly speaking. Jesus is the son of God. He died for me. He loves me. He's forgiven me. He's the Messiah. Make no mistake about it. He's the Christ. And Saul has changed. He is a new creation. And because of this, notice verse 23, Saul the persecutor now becomes Saul the persecuted, something that would be a refrain, a pattern in his life. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. This is often the case when enemies of the gospel can't defend or defeat their view, defend their views or defeat it by free and open debate. They, like Saul before, resort to force, falsehood, murder, and government suppression. The same is true if you read on in verse 26 through 30, the same patterns repeated in Jerusalem. But here's the point for Saul. Now that he knows Jesus, he is a new creation in Christ. He is changed by the grace and loving kindness of Jesus. When Jesus saves sinners, he gives them a new identity freely, by grace, through faith in him. They are a new creation. Friends, this is true with every Christian conversion person who believes in Jesus, we're told that the old person has passed away and behold, a new creation has come. It's a challenge for us. When you become a Christian, you're going to wake up, you're going to have the same family, same car, same job, but you are a new person. You are a new creation. True conversion means everything changes. We no longer live for sin. We live for righteousness given to us by Jesus Christ. I said this last week, but it bears repeating. Jesus gives himself to us so we can become 
more like him. He's not interested in giving us himself so we can be more like we already are. If you say you're a Christian, but there's no bearing in your lifestyle, your parenting, your work, your money, your time, your resources, how you do life, where's the new creation? Where's the conversion? I have no doubt. Saul, when he was writing to this fledgling church in Galatia, he was thinking back to this moment, this moment when God powerfully intervened in his life in this amazing way by grace. And he was reflecting on this event and he reflected on the way Jesus changed him and he wanted these Galatians to know this same truth. He wrote them, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who now lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Everything has changed. Close on this. You, you all know John Newton, the, the author of Amazing Grace. If you don't know Amazing Grace, I don't know where you've been living for the last 340 years. But John Newton on his deathbed, writing about the amazing grace of Jesus, the amazing grace he devoted his life to, looked his friends in the eye on his deathbed and said, you know, I'm not what I ought to be. Far from it. I'm not even what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in the world to come that Jesus has promised. But you know what? I'm not what I used to be. And by the grace and loving kindness of Jesus today, I am what I am. Because it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's amazing grace. Let's pray. Jesus, your grace is truly amazing how sweet the sound it has saved wretches and sinners like us. God, many of us were lost, but you found us, you pursued us, you moved heaven and earth to come and save us from our own sin, our own wickedness, our own destruction and death that we were so desirous to live out in our own lives. King Jesus, we thank you that you have intervened in our lives. We thank you that you love us and that you have loved us before we even knew you, that you loved us with an infinite, gracious, and perfect love. That you would be willing to sacrifice yourself, not for righteous people, but for sinners like us. And Jesus, as we come to this table, we pray, we would be reminded again that you are with us, that your grace is as true as the bread that we hold and the cup that we hold. And your grace is as true as the fellowship we look around and we see and experience here today. As we come to this table, Jesus, remind us over again that it is by grace we have been saved through faith that this is not our own doing, but a gift of you so that no one should boast. In your name we pray, amen.